Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here. Uh, welcome to Advent. Now, I have my sexy voice this morning, not because I stayed up all night watching the Gilmore Girls. You might be surprised to, to hear. Uh, but there's a little game in Tallahassee yesterday evening. Uh, and I try my best not to do a lot of yelling uh, because I know I have to, I have to do this, but um, nevertheless. Uh, so we rolled in at 4 o'clock this morning. Um, but uh, I, I wanted, wanted to say that and make mention of that because, um, uh, you know, this is a special time of the year, and there was no way. There was no way I was missing that game. There was no way I was missing being here with you this morning uh, because, um, you know, we have four weeks to do this every year. We're celebrating communion every week. Um, there's lots of special stuff. We put a lot of time and energy into it. You'll notice in your worship folder we even pro uh, produced for you a, a, um, a devotional guide for your family. Uh, to, to do together, and so again, this is kind of a high and holy part of our year together as a church, and so I hope you'll uh, take every advantage and make every, make every uh, effort to, to join us all these weeks of Advent. Now, we celebrate Advent because, like the people in the stories in the beginning pages of the Gospels, we are waiting for the coming of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. At Christmas, we celebrate His coming for the first time into the world as a baby, uh, God in human flesh and blood to initiate God's counter-movement of grace to the movement of sin and death. And we look back, we look back during these days on his first coming, his first advent, and celebrate because we know that his coming means this old, broken world that we live in is on its way out. I'm sure, I think we sang, we sang, I'm not sure if we sang the line this morning, but the old hymn that says, his blessings are now flowing far as the curse is found. Jesus is healing the world, but it won't be fully healed until he comes again. And so we also, during this time, look forward to his second coming, his second advent, at the end of time when he will finally and forever make all things new. And so advent is a time of waiting. 
It's a time of longing, looking to the future, because we are hope-shaped creatures. I want to come back to that over and over again. And what I mean by that is that the way we live now in the present is completely, completely controlled by what we believe about the future. And so the book of Revelation, which we're studying during this time, excuse me, was written to Christians who were suffering horrible things because of their faith. They were being fed to wild beasts in the arenas of the Roman Empire. They were being... They were being doused with tar and used as torches to light imperial feasts. And what John, uh, what John did, what, he gave them this vision of the future. This is what he did. He, he gave them this vision of their future and ultimate hope to help them get through. It was, it was what he knew they needed most, to know where the world was headed, what the future was that they were headed into so that they could have hope to overcome the trying circumstances they found themselves in the middle of. And hope is living in the present in light of that ultimate future. That's what hope is. You hear the Bible talk about hope, and it's a uniquely Christian thing because, because the secular world we live in no longer, no longer gives us any vision of the future. You know, one day aliens are going to land and destroy us all or a comet's going to hit the earth and poof, that's going to be it or whatever the case might be. But for, as Christians, we believe... The world is headed somewhere, that there's a hope, there's a future. There's a future we're headed towards, and, and because of that future, we can live today in the present with hope. Hope is living now in light of that ultimate future. It's, it's the emotional ability to bring the certainty and the inevitability of God's future that he promises us into the struggles of today and live with joy and peace. In one of the darkest scenes in the Lord of the Rings story, uh, all hope <clears throat> seems lost, and Sam one of the hobbits that's traveling with Frodo looks into the sky and he sees a star shining brightly in all the blackness. And here, here's how Tolkien put it. He said, And the beauty of it smote his heart and as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. That there was a light and a high beauty forever beyond its reach. See, hope, that's hope. Hope is the beauty of heaven smiting your heart and causing you to look up out of this forsaken land. That's what Revelation is about. That's why it was given to the church. And that's what, that's what Advent's about. And that's why it's a great Advent text. John wrote to these persecuted Christians to help them lift their eyes up out of their difficult circumstances. To know that the shadow, as severe as it was, was in truth just a small and passing thing. So that they could keep going and not give up. So Revelation, as we said last week, is our door opening in heaven so that we can see things as they really are and not as they appear to be. And an important part of that is to know the future we're headed towards, not the details of how we'll get there, but the big picture. Revelation is about big picture things and what it will be like, what it will be like when we're finally home. Because the future that Jesus is bringing when he comes again is so beautiful, it's so full of promise that it can make the dark valleys you walk through here and now seem light and momentary. And so this Advent season, what we're going to do is we're going to take these last four chapters of Revelation, 19, 20, 21, and 22, four chapters for four Sundays, and we're going to see that each chapter, really what each chapter does is it brings together a theme that's been developing all throughout the scriptures to kind of tie a bow on it, so to speak. Uh, each chapter with a different metaphor that describes the future Christian that Christians hope for. And the first week, this first week of Advent, chapter 9, we're just going to use this, this image the future that's described for us here is a feast, a wedding feast, a feast. 
and therefore cause for great joy and celebration. So putting your hope in the future party that God will throw causes that joy that he promised that promises that you will have there to spill over even now, right now into your life. And so the, mo- the people most looking forward to the ultimate future that Jesus will be bringing are the most joyful, constant people now. They're not on an emotional roller coaster. There's something really steady about their life and beautiful, at least to me. It's the way I want to be with that kind of joy. And so here's what we see uh, in, this, in this text. And it's, these are the three points in the outline that I've given, given to you. We, we'll see first why we should be a people of joy. Why we should be a people of joy, and it's because our future is a wedding feast. But, but number two, what Christian joy is and does. What, is, what really is the promise of joy? And then thirdly, hopefully you'll be tracking with me and we'll end with, well, how do you get it? Or how does the promise of Christmas make it possible? So why we should be people of joy, what exactly Christian joy is and does, and, and then how you can get it, how it can be awoken in you, okay? So let's just walk through the passage together. And walk through the sermon together. First with this just question, why should we be people of joy? And the reason that we should be people of joy is because the future that Jesus brings here in verse 9, if you look, is described as a feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And if you've ever been to a wedding reception, you know that even the most awkward receptions, and listen, I'm, I've been to some awkward receptions. Anybody else? But even the most awkward of them are still occasions for great joy. And this is an important theme in biblical theology. So let's just, let's just trace our way through the Bible for a minute. In the Old Testament, God is often called the husband of his people. In Isaiah 54, we read just a minute ago, for example. In Isaiah 62, we read, As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so God rejoices over you. So the prophetic vision of the, of the restoration of all things at the end of time, because God is a husband, is pictured as a wedding feast. You have that in Isaiah 25. Jesus' first public miracle happened where? At a wedding in Cana. Intentionally tapping into the prophetic expectation that we see in the Old Testament. Both Jesus himself and John the Baptist refer to him as the bridegroom. Matthew 9 and John 3. Setting an expectation for his ministry. Jesus described his kingdom with parables. Such as the parable of the wedding feast and the great banquet. At the Last Supper, with his disciples, he described his eagerness to feast with them because, here are his words, he said that it would be the last time until the Passover feast was fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And even the Apostle Paul said that Jesus' love for the church is like the love of a husband for his wife. And so this image, this image of a marriage... This image of a wedding feast is a thread that runs through the Bible beginning to end, and it reaches its fulfillment here in Revelation 19. Now, we need a little historical context to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. And so here's, here's what a wedding, you know, a wedding, um, the process of a wedding, because it was a process, what it would be like in ancient Israel. A groom would come to where the woman that he wanted to be his wife was to make a proposal, of course, he would talk with her father, they would settle things and so forth, and the two would become betrothed. And that betrothal was really even more binding than our engagement. They were legally married, really. But then what would happen is there would be an interval between the betrothal and the wedding feast itself. And in the interval, the groom would pay the price of the dowry, whatever the, whatever the father you know, made that to be. He would return to his father's house, 
he would begin to build the addition onto his father's house that he and his wife would live in. And once everything was made ready, once all the arrangements were made, you know, everything was paid for and so forth, uh, there would be a procession that began at the man's hometown. Trumpets and music and singing and dancing would signal his coming for his bride, accompanied by his friends. They would come through the night. Uh, you would hear them coming from miles away, and so the bride would, would begin to prepare herself when she began to hear the trumpets sounding because she knew her groom was coming for her, and the groom would come and would receive her. He would take her back to his father's house, and there would be a wedding feast uh, that lasted sometimes over a week or two. Now, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Doesn't it make sense that Jesus would tap into that metaphor to explain what our lives would be like and what, what heaven would be like? You can no doubt see the similarities between the historical accounts and what the Bible talks about. In his first coming, the bridegroom has made his proposal. Jesus Christ has paid the dowry price with his own life, and he's returned, we're told, to his father's house to prepare a room for us. And when all is ready, he has promised that he will come again to take us to himself, that we might be where he is also. But for now, for now we wait. Already betrothed, but awaiting for our bridegroom to return so that the party can begin. So that's the image. And that's the future that we're headed towards. And so there are three applications, I think, if I could just make sense, big picture of this. Three applications that I think this really drives home to our hearts. And they're just this. When you, when you come to understand this image of the bridegroom and, and of the wedding, of the feast that we're headed towards, then you know, you get a glimpse of, number one, what we will be to him when that happens. Number two, what he will be to us when that happens. And number three, what we will have together. So think about those three things with me. First, what we will be to him. The text says this. Look, look there. Let us rejoice. This is verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb, they cry, has come. And the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I just want you to know, you will be probably not surprised to know, I have never looked better in my life than I did on my wedding day. It's never going to happen ever again. I've given up. I don't even like to pull the pictures out because they're painful. And I want you to know, uh, my wife, you know, she's beautiful, but... I don't know that I've ever seen her more beautiful than I saw her on that day. But because that's true of most brides, isn't it? Women are never, never more beautiful than on the day of their wedding. Everything's perfect. The hair, the dress, the jewelry, the spray tan. You know, whatever it takes, right? Because the pictures, you're going to have those forever. And no man, no man that I've ever seen anyway has ever looked down the aisle at his bride and thought, hmm. <laughs> Brides, brides are radiant, aren't they? And that's the key. That's, that's what the text says. Uh, the text says that like a bride, we will one day be radiant too. Matthew 13, 43 says that we, you and I, you and I, one day we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our, of our Father. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like a good thing to me. We will finally be free from all the grime and the filth of our sin. We will be unveiled, and we will be seen for what we really are. 
And the word that describes this is that word righteousness there. We will be righteous. We will be beautiful. No more ugly sin. No more shame. No more guilty conscience. Nothing missing. Nothing out of place. Jesus will look at us the way a bridegroom looks at his bride when she's coming down the aisle. And he will say, wow. Right? I heard a friend say this week, I'm so tired of just finding myself stuck in the same place. Listen, one day you'll be unstuck. And you will finally be what you know yourself to be. And what Jesus knows you to be. Radiant like a bride. So you see what we will one day be, and that's good news. But we also see what, not only what we will be to him, but we'll also learn a little bit about what he will be to us here too. Because you see, the mistake is to think that Jesus will love you on that day because you've finally become beautiful enough for him to love. But the truth is that we'll be beautiful then because he loves us. It won't be that he loves us because we're beautiful. It's, you know, it's the opposite. It's, it's that we'll be beautiful because he loves us. Our righteousness on that day, this is what Christians believe, is not something that we work out and then we give to him as a wedding present. It's something that he works out and then he gives to us. The righteousness that you need will be the wedding present that your groom will give you on that day. Our righteousness doesn't make, us, make him love us. His love makes us righteous. I mean, that's what the text says, that it was granted to them that they might become righteous. Did you see that? I mean, is this something still so hard for us to grasp? So if you're trying to dress yourself up and make yourself beautiful so God will love you, you don't know him now the way you will then. Like a bridegroom rejoicing over his bride, as John writes, when you see him as he really is, and you know his love as it really is, only then will you become what he's always wanted you to be. But on that day, that is what he will be to us. And then think about just for a minute with me what, what we will have together. In John's gospel, Jesus says, uh, John, John 15, 9, abide in my love, he says. In other words, make your home in my love. And that just means to be set free from sin, to know the love of God. That's home. That's the problem underneath every other problem we're trying to solve. The ache behind every ache, the need driving every other need. Luther said that until you know... Until you know that, you'll be running around trying to make a home for yourself in this world, and it will be a cause of great disappointment and heartache for you because no matter how great your family is, no matter how great your Thanksgiving was, no matter how great your group of friends are, your experiences of love and belonging will always be incomplete in this world because you've been made for a love that only God himself can give and nothing else will do. Do you feel lonely? Do you feel out of place? Do you feel like you don't fit in? You don't need new friends or a new spouse. You need to stop expecting so much. You need heaven. That's what you're feeling. Heaven. And what is heaven that we're headed towards? It's a feast. It's a wedding feast. When we are finally his and he is finally ours and we begin our life together. And so if the future is a feast, then secondly, then the future is joy. I mean, and this is implied, it's not stated in the text. I'm drawing connections from all the places in the scripture that use a wedding feast image to describe Jesus' kingdom. There are calls for joy. And a feast implies in joy. And textually, what, what happens here is we turn a quarter in Revelation, beginning in chapter 19. Chapter 18 ends with an exhortation for the saints to rejoice, 1820. And then three times here, uh, in verse 1, verse 3, and verse 6, we're, we're told that, the, that those in heaven cry out, Hallelujah, which means praise Jehovah. It's a cry of joy. We are destined for joy. You're destined for joy. And the last part of Psalm 20, 126 has become so precious to me. These words that he, he, the psalmist says, 
Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaths with him. And I love those verses because, you know, you look around and the world is full of weeping. But what, what the psalmist says that if you're a person of faith, your weeping is actually an act of sowing. Think about that for a minute. That we go out into life weeping, bearing seeds for sowing, he says. So every tear is a seed that falls into the ground that will eventually become a harvest of joy. That every sad thing will come untrue. Every nightmare that we're forced to live through will become just that, a nightmare, an unreality. Just a bad dream that fades away with every waking breath until it is finally forgotten. Uh, one, of the, one of the characters in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, I think, says this perfectly. He says it this way. He says, I believe that suffering will be healed and made up for. In the world's finale, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, uh, that, that will, it will make it possible not just to forgive, he says, but what's coming What's coming, the beauty that's coming in the world's finale makes it not just possible to forgive, but he says, but to also justify all that's happened. If that's a little too deep and and Russian novelists can be, then listen to Mark Buchanan. He says, if you think, as popular lore has it, that hell is the party place where you get to slap the backs and tousle the hair of all your pals and drink a Budweiser and dance the hokey pokey with them, you've got your dress seriously scrambled. He says, the party, the party's up above. Down below, grim, sour solemnity, long, scowling faces, endless scolding speeches, much wagging of the finger, knitting the brow, quibbling over minor points, rivalry, hostility, envy. The very last place you'll find a party is in hell. We are destined for joy. Amen? You with me? You believe that? We are destined for joy. However, we are not left. Here's the good news. <clears throat> We're not left to wait until heaven to experience this joy. We know this because the feast metaphor is not only used to describe what heaven will be like, it's also used in the Gospels to describe Jesus' first advent, to describe what life was like with him when he walked on this earth and the life that he's left for us, that all of life with Jesus, Jesus is feasting. I mean, there's a scene in Luke's Gospel, for example, uh, where the Pharisees are quite upset about the frivolity and the festivity of Jesus and his disciples. Uh, they're, not, they're not nearly enough, they're not nearly serious enough for the Pharisees' liking. So the accusation, all you do is eat and drink. Sounds like some Presbyterians, I know. <clears throat> and Jesus' response, if I might paraphrase, is, uh, this is really what he says, and this is the theology of his life. He says, that's what you do when you're at a wedding. And the teaching is this, the tenor of life with Jesus for the disciples and to a degree for us is celebration and joy, not austerity, not asceticism. Turn that frown upside down and enter Jesus' kingdom. That's the message. Right? The bridegroom has come. The party has started. That's what Christmas is about. That famous Christmas passage in Isaiah 9 the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. You've increased their joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. Listen, this is what Christmas means. The bridegroom has come. The joy, of, the harvest of joy is already here. The party has already started. The baby in Bethlehem, he is God 
come into the world. So don't be cynical. Don't sit on the sidelines watching everybody else hit the dance floor. Don't be afraid. Life is full of possibilities. The kingdom has come. The Holy Spirit has been let loose on the earth. Cynicism, fear, playing it safe to keep from getting hurt, numbness, selfishness, hedonism. These are not our legacy. They are not true of Christians, and they're not true to Christmas. And that verse that we're going to be looking at a whole bunch from Romans 15 in our Advent introduction, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. See, believing leads to joy, Paul says, and all the rest is unbelief. Lewis said of the children in Narnia that when they even heard the mention of Aslan's name, something, they found something jumping inside of them as if they had smelled <clears throat> something wonderful coming from the kitchen or like the feeling you get on the last day of school just before summer break. Do you have joy like that? <clears throat> Do you have joy like that? If we were whole, we would experience joy like that. John the Baptist, when he was still in his mother's womb, when he got into the presence of Jesus, also in his mother's womb, the, the text, the scripture says he leapt for joy just to be near his Savior. And we were made to leap like, with, with joy like that too, just the mention of his name. And so Christmas is a time to celebrate, but also a time to be confronted with the, the reality that our lives don't work, we're broken because... Well, most times we don't live with joy like that. And we need to be confronted with our joylessness and repent. It's a real thing. Peter writes to the churches, though you have not seen him, you love him and you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So whenever I think of joy, like Peter describes, I think of Paul and Silas in prison, beaten, bound in shackles, but singing. Do you remember that story? A conquering joy. And I love the little line of, said it a number of times, but it's, just, it's, it's actually on a prayer card that I pray for myself where, uh, I can't remember, I think it's Lewis who said, there's enough joy in the little finger of a great saint to waken all the dead things of the universe to life. That is the promise, that we can find joy enough to waken up a dead heart, joy to waken up a dead church, joy to waken up a dead marriage, but of course, it first has to be woken up in you. And that's our third point. We come to a close with this. So how, how do you get this joy? How does this joy that obviously will be ours once we get to heaven, how do you get it now? How does it get woken up in you and me? And I have three practical applications uh, towards joy. And, and what you'll see here in the text is first that joy comes from hope. We're going to talk a lot about hope this Advent. Joy comes from hope. You have to know your joy is in heaven and not in this world, in other words. Remember, hope is is living the present in light of the future, knowing that the things you're looking for in the present are really, are really future things. The problems you're trying to solve here are really solved by future realities. And so you have to know your joy is in heaven and not in this world. The bridegroom has come, it's true. So all of life is feasting, but the Bible also teaches us that the bridegroom has gone away, and we are waiting for him to return. And Jesus himself said that when he went away, there would be feasting and there would be fasting. And that is that there would be joy, there would be powerful joy, but, but we have to remember we're not at the feast yet. And just the expectation of the joy that awaits us is enough to start our toes tapping. Revelation 19 is a vision of the future, and the feast, the feast is there, but it's still a future event. And so in order to live your life with real joy, you have to remember that, because if you don't, you'll seek joy in earthly things. And the Bible says that's wrong. The Bible calls that idolatry. It's the essence of sin, and it leads to disillusionment, disappointment, and ultimately 
death. So Christian joy is hopeful joy. It's living in the present in light of the future. It's enjoying things here and now, but not as ultimate things. I mean, if earthly joys become ultimate joys, our joy in them actually shrinks. That's the irony. And so moms, listen, the meal during the holidays when all of your kids will be back in your house and you'll all be together around your table, what? What amazing joy, right? You with me, moms? That's a feast, but it's not the feast. It's not the feast. Listen, that's canned chicken and saltine crackers on Thanksgiving Day instead of turkey and dressing compared to the feast that Jesus is going to throw in heaven. C.S. Lewis said that the experience of joy, true joy, is actually longing. He said the experience of joy is actually longing. What we call joy is actually just a longing for something that we've not yet experienced. He said our best havings our wantings. You ought, to, you ought to really just write that somewhere and think about that. Our best havings are wantings. In other words, our very best havings are still in themselves incomplete. They leave us desiring something more than the experience itself. The very best things in life are not the thing it, itself. They point us to something more, to something not yet, to something coming. The very best things are incomplete. They leave us wanting. But here's the thing. They leave us wanting not for more of the same, but for the thing itself that we're being pointed to in the experience. What does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing we're desiring. You were made for a joy that no experience in this world can give you. Do you know that? And so there's an irony, see? There's an irony. If you think the joy you're looking for can be had in this life, you'll never have it. You'll constantly be building things up and being let down. It'll be senior prom over and over and over again all throughout your life. But if you know, if you know that the joy is something beyond this world, you'll actually begin to experience it here and now. You see the irony? It's when the feast at your table doesn't, isn't looked at as the feast that it becomes feasting. If your heart is set on the heavenly feast, it will make every, the experience of every feast from now until then all the more sweet. Joy comes from hope. But secondly, i got to finish. It comes from certainty as well. And this is what I really mean by hope, but I singled it out because it's not how we usually talk about hope. We say, someone says, I hope my team wins the game. The Gator fans were saying, I hope we win the game. And what they meant was, our team's not very good and we're not sure it's going to happen, but we're, we're going to try. See, when somebody says, sorry, that wasn't in my notes. I just threw that in there. I didn't go to Tallahassee hoping yesterday. I would have gone all that way if I wasn't pretty sure. But we say, I hope, I hope this happens. I hope it goes this way. What we're, what, when we're saying that, we're expressing uncertainty, not, not certainty. But in the Bible, hope means certainty. It's the, it's the opposite. So Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So hope is certainty about things you don't now see. The things you, you don't see are just as real to you as the things you do see. And really, this is why we have this book of Revelation. You have to know your future joy is certain, and that's what you have here. Look at all the verbs in the songs that describes God's salvation. They're not in the future tense. Did you notice that? 
The heavenly multitude is not crying out, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for he will judge, he will avenge the blood of his servants. It doesn't say, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty will reign. It says he has judged, he has avenged, he reigns. The marriage supper of the Lamb has come. Now, this is a rhetorical device. And it's used by the writers of this book to say the future is so certain that it is as if it is already here. There's only one way to go out weeping, bearing seeds for sowing. You have to know the future joy that awaits you. And you have to know it's a sure thing. And that's why you have this text. But lastly, joy comes from hope and it comes from certainty. But ultimately, joy comes from grace. So why this joy in Revelation? What are they celebrating? What are they singing about? You see it in verse 1. Hallelujah. That's a, that's a term of joy. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to God. They're singing because they've woken up to God's grace. They finally see that salvation is what he does. It's in his hands, not ours. And that's the key to joy. Charles Spurgeon preached about this. I've used this a number of times, but I love it so much. And he said, uh, if you're going to throw a feast, I guess like Thanksgiving, you always want the poor and the beggars to come. Because, he said, the prim, prim and proper ladies, when the food comes in, they raise their eyebrows and they mutter, hmm, and they pick suspiciously at the food with their forks uh, and complain about the service, but not, not the beggars, not the poor. They are so amazed they're even at the table. They cheer for every dish. Look at the hooray for the turkey, right? Hooray for the pumpkin pie. And so the feast in heaven will be a celebration of God's grace to sinners. And the implication is that if you're not feasting now, if you're more... If you're more like the Pharisees than the tax collectors who gathered around Jesus during his time on earth, if you're not eating and drinking with him, if you're not cheering at every plate, it's because you still don't see yourself as a beggar. You think of your life as wages, not gifts. And if you believe that salvation is by grace, that you deserve outer darkness, and instead, because of sheer grace, you get a seat at the table, you get rich food and aged wine, then it's a party. Then it's a party. In heaven, all of our pretenses will be stripped away, and we will finally see things as they really are, that God is everything, and that we are nothing. And that will finally be the cause for our joy. Verse 9, the text says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, how do you get an invitation? The parables Jesus teaches in the Gospels make it clear that it's not your religion, it's not your success, not your smarts, not your goodness. It's his grace. In fact, the moral and the successful miss out. But it's the poor, it's the crippled, it's the lame, it's the blind. It's those that cheered every plate that end up at the party. So here's the lesson. Don't miss it. Your goodness does not get you in. His grace does. But here's the good news. If your goodness does not get you in, but his grace does, then that means that no sin can keep you out. And that is the beauty that can smite your heart and cause you to look up out of this forsaken land to live with joy and peace. That is where the joy comes from. When you, man, Jeff, Jeff said it brilliantly. I'm sure he stole it from somebody, but um, on Thursday night, he said it so brilliantly. He said, when you see the gap between what you deserve and what you actually get, God is committed to your joy. The world will end with your joy. I promise. I promise. It may not feel like it now, but it will. 
The world's going to end with your joy. Your joy, my joy, will be the sign of his triumph. He's committed to your joy because when you are most joyful in him, he is most glorified in you. Your joy in him shows his supreme worth. And he really likes that. And so let's pray that he would increase our joy, that he might increase his glory as we gather around this table now. Can we pray, Father? We thank you for that promise. We thank you that in everything, in every command that you give to us, in everything you teach us in the scriptures, you're not, you're not trying to take, <clears throat> take us into a life where there is no joy. You're, try, you're committed to our joy. Jesus, you said these things I say to you that, that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be complete. Father, you want us to experience this joy in a world full of sadness. We are pilgrim people wandering in a wilderness, and yet you promise. You promise us conquering, overpowering joy that would cause us to go through life, not on a roller coaster, but constant, steadfast, moving out in love towards other people, bearing fruit that would be not only to your glory, but to our future joy, a harvest of joy for us in heaven. And Father, we need that. We so desperately need that. We are so fragile. Our lives was so... Joy is so wispy for us. It's, it's, it's so, um, it's like mist that is here one minute and then gone the next. And we confess that. And so in this meal, would you, would you come and, and yet again remind us of your great love? Teach us of your grace that we might find the joy that we've been made for. <clears throat> because in that we believe we glorify you. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, you know, I was sitting there thinking, we're talking about a wedding, a wedding feast or a wedding reception, and I, I was thinking about all the times that I've been a part of weddings, and those occasions have been cause for great stress and not causes for great joy, especially for the moms involved. Uh, and so what I wanted to say to you is, can you imagine a party where you don't have to do any of the preparation, you just get to show up and have fun, and it'll be perfect. And you won't think, oh, I wouldn't have done that, or oh, I don't know about those, you know, that arrangement of flowers over there, the centerpieces on the tables or whatever. Can you imagine something so beautiful and so perfect that it just takes your breath away and you had nothing to do with it? You get, just get to show up. That's the promise of the benediction, that not only is that really true on that last day when we will finally be at the feast that we've been made for, but every day of your life, you just get to show up. Because he's taking care of things. That's what these words mean. And so receive them. Uh, as a cause for great joy and then go out rejoicing. Even if it's to go in tears, know that those tears are sowing seeds that will ultimately be joy for you. Take heart. Make that, make, may that bring you hope. That's my prayer. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Mm -hmm.